begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of our service, this is kind of the new, this is the, the start of a new sermon series where we want to talk about um, defining, let me say that a different way, where we want to let Christ and Scripture define what Christ and Scripture are about. And so we're going to do that over the subsequent weeks. We're going to look at kind of different aspects um, and simply step back and say, um, what does Scripture say? And today, specifically, what does Christ say about who He is, why He's come, and what impact that has for us uh, on our living? Uh, and that makes a little bit of sense. So um, what a frame sets our eyes off to what is inside of it. Right? Uh, I think a definition does the same thing. If we hear a new word, a word that we don't recognize, we might ask somebody, can you define that for me? Right? And so it tells us what we're looking at. Uh, I think that's important for us, especially when we talk about our faith and when we talk about Scripture. We say, uh, um, how does Scripture and how does Christ define itself? Right? Now, here's the really interesting thing about that. Um, if we as believers, as Christians, don't know how the Bible defines itself or what Christ says about himself, uh, then who will? And, and lest we think that there is just a void that sits there, there isn't. I'll put it this way. Um, if we as believers don't allow Scripture to define itself, and if we don't know what those definitions are, then the world outside will fill in the blanks, right? The world around us, the culture around us, will uh, um, fill in those definitions, will fill in that frame, and more often than not, it's not complimentary, it's not accurate, and far too often, it's a, it's a caricature of what Scripture actually says. So, um, why is it important for us as believers to, to know how Scripture frames itself in those definitions? It's because we are, you are, the only ones that are able to go into our world and say, actually, this is who Christ is. This is what Scripture says, right? So as we go through in the subsequent weeks, I think that's going to be important for us to do. Now, here uh, is my warning to you. Um, it's not always the easiest thing, right? Uh, um, you think about that frame. If, if everything within that frame was exactly what you wanted, it wouldn't be exactly what the person next to you wanted or the one next to you or the one next to you, right? And Scripture works that way. Um, if, if Scripture at times does not challenge you, if Scripture at times does not uh, um, um, knock you around a little bit, um, cause you to think, cause you to, to wrestle, uh, drive you deeper into the pages of Scripture, if it doesn't do that, then actually we have to step ask, back and ask ourselves, are we, are we reading the full content, right? Are we letting it wash over us or are we simply sidestepping the parts that we don't like so much, right? So if we define our own frame, we say, well, this stuff we're going to keep on the outside of it, but I'm real comfortable with what's right here. But here's the really important thing for us as believers to understand is, is that Scripture itself and actually Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. We all want to do that because we, we want to make our own definitions. We want to say what's in this frame or what isn't. And we say, actually, that's our right as Americans and our freedom, right? 
Um, we want to, to be able to go to the buffet and say, I'll take some of that. I like the, uh, the orange chicken, but I don't want any vegetables, <laughs> right? right? And we, we, we on, in large part, maybe get used to that within our culture and within our world, right? So I'll take some of this, but this other stuff I'm going to leave to the side. But the trouble is, is that Scripture and Christ does not allow for that, right? Um, and, and so here's maybe my warning and my encouragement. There will always be parts of Scripture that are hard, that are difficult, that you wrestle with. But do not take that as if there is something either broken with you or with Scripture Actually, I see that as a strength, right? Because Scripture in the pages of, Bible, of the Bible and Christ himself is timeless. It was not written for Americans in the 21st century, right? Or Christians in the first, second, or third century, or for any nation or for any specific people, and yet it was written for all people of all time, right? And so it will come into conflict with, our, with us personally and with the culture around us, because guess what? Scripture and Christ are outside of culture and outside of time and outside of any one people. So rather than seeing that as a problem, I would argue that's a strength, right? Because the words that we read here today, uh, the, the words that we hear from Christ himself are something far bigger than just us in our time and in our moment, right? In fact, it's as big as God. So, that's a little bit of my warning and my encouragement as we go through this sermon series. Um, we're going to wrestle with stuff, and good for us, <laughs> right? Uh, if not us as believers, then who, right? And it's important for us as we share Christ and who He truly is with our world around us, okay? So, framing things. We're going to do that today, um, and we're going to kind of start, uh, as my theme I mentioned, um, we're going to start at the center, okay? So, what's at the center of that frame um, Jesus forces his disciples and he forces us today to consider that, to ask that question, what's at the very center? Um, have any of you done your summer vacations yet? Some, yeah, some have done some traveling. Um, has anyone ever been to the booming metropolis of Felicity, California? No? Has anybody ever heard of Felicity, California? We have some Californians and have you ever heard of it? No? Okay. Well, listen, now you can, you can, you can plan a trip there. Um, if you go there, just keep in mind, um, there's only a population of two. So make sure you fill up on gas before you get there and back, okay? Uh, this is where Felicity, California is. So very southern tip of California. Um, um, it it had a popula has a population of two. At one point, it had a population of three, but, um, but it... But it kind of has changed, population flux, fluctuations. But here's its claim to, claim to fame for Felicity, California. It claims that it is the center of the world. Yeah, you're thinking that's a pretty bold claim, isn't it, right? And maybe some of you are thinking, well, that's Californians always say that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing, right? Uh, but they claim that they, they are the center of the world, so Felicity, uh, California, center of the world. In fact, uh, how can you argue with a plaque? Because they have a plaque that says official center of the world in Felicity, California. Now, uh, you might think that this is a little bit dubious of a claim, but the county that Felicity, Felicity California is in has also affirmed that Felicity is the center of the world and 
uh, there is a French institute that also affirmed that Felicity, California is the center of the world. So now who can argue? Saying they have a plaque, they have a sign, the county says it, and even the French say it, right? This has got to be legit. Well, um, all of this was the creation uh, of actually a French man um, who decided that he was going to buy about 2,600 acres uh, in this county. There was nothing there, and he was going to make it the center of the world. So uh, his name was Jacques André Estel. So um, that's as good as I can do with French. Uh, Jacques um, um, is famous outside of Felicity, California, because uh, he's usually credited with popularizing um, skydiving and parachuting in America. So he's actually got a remarkable history, uh, served in multiple wars, but, but kind of popularized uh, um, parachuting as a, as a sport and as a pastime in America. Well, in about the mid-'80s, he must have had a midlife crisis or he must have got bored, and he decided, I'm going to buy 2,600 acres in the middle of the desert, and I'm going to make a reason for people to come there. And he said, what better reason than claiming it's the center of the world, okay? So he did it, right? Now, he's got a sign, he's got a plaque, he's got a couple institutions that have affirmed it, but he knew that he needed something else. And so he thought in his mind, um, what, what kind of communication method does no one ever argue with? And it came to his mind um, that it's children's stories. So he has a quote that says, like, no one argues about Little Red Riding Hood and that, that her hood was red, right? You just take it as fact, right? So guess what Jacques did? He wrote a kid's book. It's called Ko, the Good Dragon, and the Center of the World. Guess where Ko, the Good Dragon, lives and where the center of the world is? Felicity, California. Now he's, got, now he's got like notes on it. So now he's like stacking up credible sources for his claim that this is the center of the world, right? Uh, so he wrote the kid's book about a year before he, he got all of the, the county on board and all those kind of things. Um, and then he talked to his wife and his wife said, well, if this is going to be the center of the world, um, then I, I really think that you need to have something that kind of focuses everybody on that point. And she said, I really think it needs to have a pyramid. So sure enough. So what did Jacques do? Built a pyramid, Felicity, California. Okay. But he didn't stop there. He said, we got to bring, we got to do even more. If this is the center of the world, we got to kind of build it up. So you can see in the background, he said, I'm also going to put a church there, right? So he hauled in like tons and tons of dirt and put this church kind of on this man-made hill in Felicity, California, okay? He also decided he wanted, if this is the center of the world, he wanted a little bit about the creation of the world, right? So in granite, he's got a, a, a Leonardo da Vinci painting, right, of Adam and God and creation. Uh, let's see, he's got a replica of that same statue's arm, and it is actually pointing towards the pyramid, of course, center of the world. Okay, so that's there. Um, this is a little better look of, of the whole campus as you go there. Um, in the center there, he's actually got a history of the world that's inscribed in granite, so it's now become a museum and a historical location, right, where the events of the world are now forever inscribed in granite. Uh, at the center of that, he's got like a pseudo Rosetta stone with different languages around it, because if it's the center of the world, it should have languages from everywhere on the world, so he, he put that in. Um, he also has a, a spiral staircase to nowhere, which 
Yeah, it doesn't have any meaning. Uh, other than um, the fun fact was they were getting rid of it. It was a spiral staircase off of the Eiffel Tower, and he's French, and they offered it to him. Guess what? It now resides in Felicity, California, at the center of the world, okay? Um, and no center of the world would be complete without a museum and a museum gift shop, right? Okay, so somewhat manufactured, um, somewhat created, completely created, right? Center of the world. Um, he, he did everything he could to kind of stack up reasons why this should be legitimate, and yet from all your snickering and your laughs, you probably don't find it legitimate, but I do, some of you have a twinkle in your eye, and I feel like this might be on your list of, uh, of uh, tourist attractions, right, to go, to go visit, right? Um, but it serves as a, maybe a good example for us today of um, where Jesus focuses us. When we talk about defining um, Christianity and what it's about, um, it, it can't be centered on anyone and in any other place other than Christ and Christ alone. Uh, and so that's going to be what our theme is this morning. Um, not Felicity, California and a made-up center of the world, but a person named Jesus Christ who is not only the center of our world and our history, but also of our hearts, okay? So that's where we're headed today. Um, I've got kind of three parts that we want to look at uh, with that theme of centered. Um, and as we dig into our text, um, we want to talk about the words from Christ. At times, maybe they feel as though they're the most difficult simultaneously the most beautiful and I would argue the most useful for us as believers. So that's kind of, kind of be where we're headed. So uh, if you'd like to follow along in your bulletin, you're welcome to do that. Um, we're going to start with just verses uh, 34 through 36 uh, and talk a little bit about maybe why these words, and even as I read them from our gospel reading, um, felt, sounded difficult. Okay, let's begin with verse 34. Jesus says this, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Okay. So, um, diff difficult words from Jesus, right? Um, as he talks to us uh, and, and talks about uh, um, um, the divisions that will be within families, right, between loved ones, when he talks about peace and a sword, I think these are difficult things for us to wrap our minds around. Now, keep in mind when this is taking place, this is actually at the end of chapter 10, um, Jesus is sending out his disciples into Israel to share the good news, to restore the good news of the promise of a Messiah, specifically pointing to Jesus. So this is the very end of that chapter, right? So in large part, what he is saying to his disciples is, uh, um, before you go out and do this, or as you go out and do this, I need you centered. I need you to understand exactly who I am and why I've come. And I think we can understand that as well, right? In fact, Jesus speaks to us in the very same way. These might be bold words. At times, these might be difficult words. But he speaks to us and to our hearts in the very same way, right? He, he dearly, desperately wants us to know who he is and why he had come. So he reiterates that for his disciples. Now, 
Um, I kind of focused on two different words in this text, um, and I highlighted them in that first one, um, that word peace and that word sword. And I'm reading your minds right now, but I I would guess that no one had any issue with that term peace, right? Like you're not quibbling with that at all. Not saying like, oh, this Jesus guy is way too peaceful, right? This Christian thing is way too peaceful. Like, because we don't, right? Because that, that, that idea of that concept of peace is one that we hold near and dear to our hearts. But here's where it becomes a little bit difficult, especially in our text, is that Jesus is contrasting that with the sword. And now that proves a little stickier, doesn't it? A little more difficult. And so we have to ask ourselves in this text is, um, is this something new Jesus is saying? Is this something that's out of the ordinary? When we talk about defining what Christianity is about or who Christ is, is this something that, is, that is, uh, um, was maybe just recorded incorrectly, right? Uh, um, or somebody maybe heard Jesus say it wrong. Truth is, it isn't. So I want to take you back. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, presented in the temple to an old man named Simeon. It had come to Simeon in a a vision that he was going to be able to see uh, the fulfillment of this promise, the fulfillment of Christ having come, right? And so Simeon is in the temple as Jesus, the infant child Jesus, uh, is presented to Simeon. And some of Simeon's words uh, uh, maybe are near and dear to your hearts. They've been part of of historic Christian liturgy for a long, long time. Simeon says this. So this is from Luke chapter 2. Simeon took him, talking about Jesus, the infant child, in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Okay? So there's that word peace once again. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed." And a sword will pierce your own soul, too. So from the outset, this is the reality, isn't it? This is the reality of the world into which Jesus was born and the reality for why he came. Now, that second part, um, we probably don't remember as well, do we? Right? The first part, the song of Simeon, my eyes have seen your salvation, right? The peace that comes from that. Uh, and we love that as we hear uh, the account of Jesus' presentation at the temple around Christmas time. Uh, we love that part, but I fear that at times maybe we skip over the end of that, right? That Christ, who he was, why he came, was going to call the, cause the rising and falling and would discern hearts. What does that mean? It means that when you look at Christ, when we see Christ, right, he also sees us. The good and the bad, the right and the wrong, right? Christ himself and God sees through pretense and hypocrisy, right? Christ's ministry um, over and over and over again cuts to the heart of what's happening, whether it is the religious elite and Pharisees that are in front of him or prostitutes and tax collectors, Christ always speaks to the heart directly. So he's done that from the beginning and he continues through his entire ministry, right? Um, And and that that causes difficulty, doesn't it? 
In fact, maybe it's caused difficulty in your heart or in our hearts. And I don't know where everybody is at on their faith journey here today. We've got some guests, visitors. Uh, maybe you're newer to Christianity and you're wrapping your mind around who is this God, who is this Christ that we're talking about. If I'm going to call myself a Christian, a follower of a Christ, I ought to know who he is and what he's about, right? And Christ lays it out for us, right? Both peace, but also at times difficulty in the sword, right? Um, also struggle and pain as the, the motivations of our own hearts are opened and revealed, right? And in the world around us, okay? So when we talk about that idea of peace and a sword, um, that isn't new to Matthew chapter 10, but right from the beginning, right, this is what was destined to happen, right? A stumbling block for many within our world. Now, you may still have a little bit of issue with that idea of peace versus a sword, but um, here's the reality of our world. Um, the sword is always present, isn't it? Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, no matter what uh, um, religion you believe, what philosophy you follow in your living, um, no matter where we go in our entire world, there is always the sword. There is always pain, there is always separation, there is always struggle. Someone once said that um, humankind has almost a, a limitless ability to separate and denigrate, right? And the truth is, that is true, isn't it? Because we know it with our, in our own hearts, but we also see it in the world around us, right? And that's a little bit of a, I think, a realization that maybe culturally we have come to in our world. Um, I, I'm going to digress just a bit, um, but there was a time when uh, there were those that would say, um, war pain, separation, all of these things. You want to know the problem? You want to know why we have those things in our world? Well, it's because of these Christians, right? Or maybe even more broadly, because of religion, right? So, so the onus was placed on Christianity, religion in general, say, this is the reason why we've got war, why we've got separation, why we've got racial divides, why we've got all of these problems in our world. And if if we were able to get rid of religion or Christianity specifically, then all these things would be cleaned up, okay? That was kind of the common mantra for years and years and years. And yet, um, how well has that worked? Well, a couple things. Number one, um, Christianity has not and religion in general has not disappeared, right? And what else hasn't disappeared? War and pain, and suffering, and struggle, and division, right? Uh, um, and so we maybe collectively as a nation have started to ask ourselves, and I would argue um, this is a little bit of a generational divide too, right? Um, if you're under the age of 30, young adults have started to ask legitimate questions. If, if um, Christianity and religion was the reason for all these problems, then how come things haven't gotten better when, let's say, Christianity has lessened? Right? Um, and even more so, what was the solution? Well, we just have to become enlightened. 
We just have to, to, to rise above the things of this world. And the more enlightened we become, the more intellectual we become, the more we put our faith and our trust in, in science and technology and the world around us, this is going to usher in a new age of utopia. And yet, it has not delivered on the promise, has it? And so, rightfully asking the question, right, uh, um, if... if the boogeyman was always Christianity, and yet that hasn't helped. And you said the answer was secularism, maybe even atheism, science, or just rising above things. And yet, over the last 20, 30 years, we have not seen less division, less war, less pain, less struggling, right? Then the question rightfully is asked, um, has that let us down as well? So, as we've said before, it's not a matter of, of if we worship or if we follow. The only question is who or what is guiding us, right? And to, and to what end? And in large part, that's what Jesus is talking about in our text here today. So, universally, whether believer or unbeliever alike, we can look into our world and see pain and division and suffering and struggle. That's true, isn't it? No matter what you believe or claim not to believe, we see those things in our world. But in Christ, Jesus at least gives us an answer and a purpose and a narrative for all of that, right? And again, this is nothing new, right? When Jesus says, says um, um, I am the Savior of the world, in fact, that's the reason I came, that's consistent throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus says this in Matthew 22, verse 36. When asked by a Pharisee, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay? And so, what is Jesus asking of us? He's asking us to be honest about our allegiance, about who we follow and who dictates and guides our living. That's all he's asking. And the truth is, um, every single one of us has something, some kind of plumb line or guiding thing that guides how we act, how we speak, what we do, and what we choose not to do. The only question we get to ask is, are we honest with ourselves as to who or what that is? And so if Jesus' text today um, feels difficult, it probably should a little bit. <laughs> because what is Christ doing? Well, he's speaking right to our hearts, isn't he? He's asking of us, who is your Lord and Savior He's asking us to be honest with ourselves, <laughs> who is our guiding force and our Lord and Savior, who is on that throne above. And Jesus is simply stating, I don't share that throne with someone else or something else. And you might say, well, that's not very sharing of you, Jesus. But see, he knew something about us and our, the world around us, right? He said, no matter what you put on that throne, if it's from this life and this world, it will let you down. It cannot reign and it will not give its life for you. 
And we've got examples of that. If you put your career there, sooner or later, it'll let you down. They'll lay you off a year before you get your full pension, as if you hadn't given 20, 30 years of your life to that company, right? Um, you will lose the respect that you engendered as you were, were maybe ascending within the work field and people valued the unique skills that you had. All of a sudden, without you realizing it, you seem to be on the back hill, right? Where that respect is gone. Uh, if it's a spouse, if it's a boyfriend or girlfriend, if it's a person, if it's a relationship that you put on that throne, Number one, it's not a weight that that person can actually hold. You should not ask your spouse to be God and sit on that throne. You should not ask your kids to be God and sit on that throne. They can't. It's a weight that will absolutely crush them, right? It'll absolutely crush them. In fact, anything that we put up there, whether it's finances, career, respect, relationships, pursuit of pleasure, all of these things, sooner or later, they let us down. And you want to know who knew that was Jesus. He knew it. In fact, that is why he came. That's why God made man. That's why Christ entered into our world, into our history, because he knew that there would always be pain and brokenness and sword and division. And that is why he lived his life in our place, in your place, right? He saw the brokenness and the mess that we had made of our world and our own individual lives, and he said, I love them enough that I will enter into their world, and I will live for them, and I will die for them, so that they know that they are loved and they are forgiven, okay? So that they will know true peace. So, difficult? I think a little bit, but some of the most beautiful things and words that we can hear. Continue on. Verse 38. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So again, what is Jesus talking about? Not just earthly life, but eternal life, isn't he? Right? And where do we find that? We find that at the cross. If you go to Felicity, California, the center of the world, you see how definitively I said that? Yeah. Center of the world. If you go between Thanksgiving and I think Christmas, they will give you a little piece of paper that says you have officially been at the center of the world. Okay? <laughs> so now some of you are thinking, okay, that's when I'm going to go, right? But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. You don't need a certificate that says you were there. Uh, in, in fact, um, you have something far greater. You have Christ, the Logos, the Word made flesh, in your hearts, in your lives, and at your fingertips on the pages of Scripture. Right? Um, um, the center of the world came to us, came to you. And the center of the world lived his life and willingly laid down that life on the cross for you. That's the most beautiful message we can take to heart and we get to share, right? It's that Christ looked at the world and the brokenness and saw not only the brokenness in its, in its magnitude, but he saw you. And he said, for you, I will die. For you, I will give my life. For you, 
are my cause. For you, I will lay down uh, my life and, and grant forgiveness and eternal life. And so if Jesus' words on the outset are difficult, it pales in comparison to the beauty of what Jesus has done for you and for our world. Nothing less uh, than sacrifice and forgiveness of sins. Okay? So, maybe difficult, but remarkably beautiful. And I would argue useful as well. Continue with a few more verses here. Verse 40. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. So, this a little bit is talking to his disciples and to you and I. So um, if we say this message was difficult, uh, but it's also beautiful, in fact, it is what makes us who we are as believers and as followers of Christ, then what does God have in store for us as we go into the world and the culture around us? I, I think it changes our view of the world around us, and specifically three different things. It changes our view of ourselves, the suffering that we will and do encounter, and our view of others. So specifically, our view of ourselves, you are children of God. You are kings and queens. You, you, are, you are children of God's family and are viewed that way by your God above, not because of what we've done or haven't done, but because of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So first and foremost, I pray that it changes our view of ourselves, not too high and not too low, but an accurate view of how God views you from above, right? As, as our king, as our God looks at you as children of his, right? I think it also helps us in our view of suffering and pain because there is sword and division and struggle and suffering and pain, right? That is present, omnipresent in our lives and in the world around us. And yet, with a view of Christ, it changes how we see that. It is not meaningless, it is not random, it, it is not that it has zero purpose. In fact, God reframes that and gives you a different view of it. He said, that is present in our lives, both believer and unbeliever alike, but God says, Christ says, I'm going to use that pain, that suffering, uh, that struggle, not only for your good, but for the good of those that are in your life and those around you. So it does not mean that we are free, that this is just a straight shot to eternity with paved roads, right? But Jesus says, I'm going to walk with you through it. I'm going to be at your side. And when it is difficult and when it is hard and when you suffer and when you endure pain, I will be right at your side. And in truth, he understood pain and suffering as well to the point of laying his life down for you. So he says, I'm going to walk with you through it. And lastly, it changes our view of others. The more we drive ourselves into the heart of Christ and his unflinching, never-ending, faithful love, something amazing happens. It doesn't make you selfish. It doesn't, right? Uh, the, the, the more we drive ourselves into the gospel, the more Christ drives us into the lives of the people that he's put around us. That's true within marriages, within families, and within communities. The closer we are to the heart of our Lord and Savior, the more intimately we feel, know, and understand the selflessness, the faithfulness, and the never-ending love that Jesus Christ has laid out for you on the cross. And when we know that, what does Jesus do with it? He sends us out with it. <laughs> Right? 
to your spouses, to your families, to your neighborhoods, and to our communities. And so Christians are not this insular thing because Christ does not allow it. As we come closer to him, he drives us out with that grace, with that love, with that, that beautiful message that sins are forgiven and that we are loved in him. So, as we define what Christianity is about, I don't think we can take any steps forward until we know that at the center of that frame always has been and always will be Jesus Christ. And at the center of his heart was you. That's why he laid down his life. That is why we are forgiven. And that's why we have hope of sharing that beautiful news with the world around us. Amen.